Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Jalliner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Aubrey Robinson. Aubrey is a musician, educator and is director founder of Harmony Music School UK, a private music school based in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, which operates two different branches. Um, Aubrey, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Hi, Scott. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, pleasure for us as well to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that point of view. Because it's proven to be such a challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for the likes of yourselves, to what extent has all of this changed things? Um, the main thing is obviously the, the safety aspect, I guess. Um, so when it first happened in, in March, we were kind of, like a lot of businesses, I think we were in the midst of planning um, what we were going to do. And I think we were caught out slightly by the speed of what happened and the severity of what happened. Um, so it, to the point where I think it was the Monday evening when um, Boris gave uh, the announcement and we were kind of in lessons, face-to-face lessons. Um, so I came out of one lesson at half four and all of a sudden we've made the decision, my, my um, fellow director, we had made the decision that we were going to go online from the next day. Um, so that was our first response um, to, to get everything online as soon as possible, really, which we were kind of halfway through planning. Um, and then that kind of kept us going um, up until um, July, August, when we, we were able to get back into face-to-face lessons. Um, but we've had to change quite a lot of how we do things, um, whether it's from the, we've put screens in um, between, it's all one-to-one teaching we do in, in our school, so we've put big um, two-meter screens in between the student and the teacher, uh, everybody's wearing face masks, we've um, made some of the rooms bigger by knocking walls down, we've um, staggered the lesson time start so that um, students aren't interacting with each other, so it's, you know, it's, it's mostly from all of that sort of thing. And then really um, little kind of practical elements like when we're doing um, piano lessons, as an example, because we've got the distance between the student and the teacher now, we, we can't actually see the sheet music. So we've had to put um, sheet music cameras in that we can view on our computers. So there's a lot of stuff that's come off the back of the safety elements that we've then had to adapt to and find solutions to. And thinking about the um, sort of long-term situation, do you think that it's going to be like this within your line of work for quite some time, just because even when we do have a working vaccine, fingers crossed that does happen and the virus is no longer an immediate and present danger, it could still take some time for people's confidence to come back, anxieties to subside and things to really kind of get back to the way that they were and people being able to sort of go into public places, mix with others again? I think so, yes. Um, I mean, I think that the procedures we've put in place will be with us for quite a long time. Um, I mean, as a business, we're, we're just finding out really what the true impact is, and we're, we're about 25% down on the, the one-to-one lessons that we do uh, in our school. We also do some um, primary schools 
secondary school contracts where we go into the school and, and deliver everything from whole class um, primary school lessons to the peripatetic one-to-one lessons. And we're about 50% down there. There's a lot of schools that are not wanting external providers to go in um, to help maintain their bubbles. But I think a lot of the procedures in, in the distancing and the screens will be with us for quite a while. Um, there seems to be a, a preference for people to get back to one-to-one face-to-face lessons as opposed to the online lessons. I think the online lessons were, were great for what they did. They kept everybody sane a little bit. They kept a lot of businesses kind of going. Um, but I think people's preference is really to get back to normality or, or as near to normality as they can with it. Mm. And you certainly hope that that can happen sooner rather than later, of course. Now, reflecting on the experience that you've had over the uh, the last uh, few months, though, to get to this point, we are on the programme trying to find some silver lining in what has been a very dark and dense cloud over all of us. So is there anything positive that you can take from this and that maybe you've learned something about yourself and the people you work with as a result of having to manage this crisis or has it been largely doom and gloom? Um, I think taking the positives is it's kind of um, been a very reflective time. So, so both myself and Abby um, have been able to look at a lot of things, both ourselves and our leadership skills and how we're managing the business, and then everything within the business. Really, you know, we had a bit of time to consider that. Um, so, from the positives, I think personally, it's kind of um, weirdly reinvigorated me a little bit. Um, I'm getting stuck into things a lot more um, and I'm, I'm kind of putting things in place and, and we're addressing some of the the issues that maybe you would have just let go week to week um, in a normal situation. So that's the positive from it. I mean, we, we've tried to, when, when everything first initially happened, our, our first um concern if you like was we called it operation keep the lights on we just wanted to to make sure that the, the company survived really um and with the, the government measures that were put in place they have allowed us really to, to ride the losses that we've made and uh, we also were concerned for the welfare of our, our staff and our teachers um and our students so that was the, the kind of primary concern mm. uh, once we wanted to to get back uh, we kind of put a three-stage strategy in really once we wanted to come back to, to face-to-face lessons and um, the first stage was just making sure everybody was comfortable really coming back into what was a slightly strange and um, slightly daunting um, situation we just wanted everybody to get used to the situation everybody to get to feel comfortable coming back in into work so that was our first stage once we'd done that it was kind of assessing all right what's changed what do we need to to change, what do we need to adjust in terms of processes and how we conduct the lessons. So we, we went into a, a more adaptive stage. And that's when we found out, like I said, daft little things like not being able to see the sheet music because you're too far away and things like that and not being able to write in students' books. So that's when we had to kind of come up with more creative ways of doing that, um, usually with the technology um, um, aspect. Mm. Um, and then the third stage is... is Consolidating what we've got, we know where we are now in terms of the losses and, and the number of students we've lost. So it's kind of planning to to push the business forward again and rebuild it up. So that's how we've tried to approach it. Um, and like I said, from from the positive aspect, I think from a leadership um, point of view, it's 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 been good in some ways. You know, it's it's allowed us to to focus and and say, all right, what does our business need to take it forward? What can we do to support our, mm. our team really? Yeah. <sighs> 
And you've talked about, of course, the emphasis of mental health and well-being on, of course, the people that you work with and, of course, the those that use your services as well, the students. But other than that, um, how important is it to safeguard your own mental health and well-being in a leadership capacity because when you are stepping up as a beacon of sort of inspiration motivation and sort of reassurance during this time it can become very mentally taxing for yourself as well so it is important as a leader also to take a step back and just take stock sometimes as well isn't it and make sure that your own well-being is safeguarded in that way Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we all have those those days and, and, and times when we just kind of sit down and think, what is happening? You know, what, what is what is going on and, and the frustration that we get with that. And I think it's important to have one is, is to get some time off, some good quality time off when, when you can. And I, I think my own particular situation, I'm, I'm lucky that um, I've, I've got Abby to support me and vice versa so there's, you know, there's a couple of us to run ideas off and, and things but I think it's vitally important that you get some time out just just to kind of um, get away from it for a few few hours It's easy to get sucked into the hectic world of running a business or an organisation even at the best of times um, let alone when you're actually dealing with a crisis such as this so I think that is absolutely right and incredibly important and another thing as well um, that I wanted to ask as well Aubrey is that um, when we're in a situation like this and there are a lot of downhearted young people in particular looking at the economic situation and what all of this is doing to the creative industries to the employment prospects that they have um, what would your sort of message of inspiration be to those young people to really get them to pick their heads up and start on the road to success because there are going to be opportunities as a result of this even though it does look bleak at the moment I, I think um, if I was to offer any advice it would be to, to try and not not to get uh, waylaid by what's happening at the minute I mean a big part of um, any creative industry certainly the music side is is the preparation and the work you put in behind the scenes um, and I think for me if the young people can use that time positively try to stay positive and just say, you know, if I concentrate on what I need to do, if I concentrate on putting the work in, the practice in and the studying in, into what I need to do, when things do look up at whatever time that may be and, and are more positive and the opportunities start to, to come again, you've done everything that you can possibly do to be ready for those opportunities. I think what young people don't want to do is, is kind of, not do anything, and then when the opportunities do start coming, not be prepared. So I would try and take a positive stance on it and say, you know, I've got this time now to really be as prepared as I can um, and, and be ready for those opportunities when they come. And thinking about those opportunities that may crop up in the next 12 months, uh, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, I'm interested to understand, Aubrey, where do you really want Harmony Music School to be in 12 months' time? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved, considering the challenges that we are going to have to uh, get over? Um, our first and foremost goal is, is to rebuild to where we were um, at the start of this year, really, in terms of the, the number of students we're teaching and then the turnover and all that sort of stuff. So that's our first goal. The other aspect we're looking at as well is how can we enhance the customer experience and how can we look at other avenues um, where we can move into, really. It, it, it could be the online lessons. It could be um, adding um pre-recorded lessons as a subscription-based, uh, you know, to our offerings. It could be a mixture of those. So I think it, it's really, on one hand, 
regrowing the business to where we were and then beyond. And on the other hand, I think we want to really look at these extra um, services that we can offer. Certainly going to be an interesting time, isn't it? And I wish you all the luck in the world, Aubrey, and making all of that possible and getting back to where you were pre-pandemic. And I actually think, just given how enlightening it's been having you come on and share your views as to what's been going on behind the scenes, that it would actually be great at some point in the next 12 months to welcome you back onto the programme, just to see how some of those plans are starting to come to fruition. And let's hope at that point there'll be some positive news to share. Yeah, hopefully I'd be delighted to come back on and yeah, just give me a shout out. I'd certainly enjoy that, Aubrey. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show with us today. And um, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we've got a long way to go yet. I think that's for sure. Yeah, you too, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'd also like to reiterate that exact same message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a big difference in saving lives during this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Aubrey Robinson, musician, educator and director founder of Harmony Music School UK onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, as well as that famous treble um, in the fourth to victory over West Germany that saw England lift the Jules Rimet trophy and crown Sir Jeff as the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final. He scored over 200 professional goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City. Now, Sir Jeff will be coming onto the programme not only to look back at that historic day in 1966, but also over some of the other highlights of his career, the importance of robust leadership throughout, and also he'll be leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can during this most trying time that will be coming up next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning Uh, good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is the weather's pretty good at the moment i hope may, may it last Absolutely. Thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I wanted to bury it and I'd be absolutely I would be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my 
uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I, I've I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making... This, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in 
uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into, what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you, you, union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters and 
from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continues making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you're able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, 
we actually got to find, this is absolutely true, we've got to find a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those, those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age and uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football it's just that that's how it, how it happened uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying come and have a trial at this club or that club uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell him to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. 
But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that 
A, he saw when I was at West Ham, and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think, it, <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about 8 o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England? Um. Well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And, of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time with the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the... Uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on the goal over the, two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and uh, enjoyed the experience. 
and I earned a few quid, and I think it pays for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing, or managing, or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, because I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.